How, how are we doing today? Hey? <laughs> yeah, cool. I, I, I don't know. I'm excited, man. It's like, it's cool. I, I love um, just getting to look back and see what God has done here over the past 10 years. It's been a really fun weekend. Uh, there's been a lot of friends that have come in uh, from out of town, people that have been a part of this church in the past, people that uh, in many ways have kind of gone before you and laid the groundwork for uh, some of the things that you guys get to experience uh, that, that are part of the church here today. So that's been a really uh, fun thing. This weekend, in, in some ways, though, has kind of been an emotional roller coaster, really, even just kind of this past week, um, because there's been such a celebratory attitude and, and so much fun in getting to see people that have come back in. Uh, but then there's also just this aspect of, um, of heaviness that I've been dealing with, and that relates to kind of what I'm going to be preaching on this morning. So I just want to warn you, actually, we're going to be uh, continuing our sermon a series about the parables of Jesus. And the one that we're coming to this morning is actually uh, a pretty heavy one. It's kind of scary. Um, there, there's a, a lot that we're going to have to consider in it. Uh, but for whatever reason, we felt when we were kind of laying out our preaching schedule way back in the summer uh, that this was the sermon that we needed to preach on this weekend. Um, so I, I don't know exactly why that is. I don't know. Maybe somebody's here today that specifically uh, needs to hear this message. I was kind of thinking about it last night. It's like, man, this is a weird sermon to preach on like a celebratory weekend. Uh, but I'm going to go forward with it. So uh, we'll, we'll see what God does here. But I just, just do want to warn you that um, there's, there probably won't be as much humor or anything like that in, in the sermon today. And uh, th there's a heavy topic. So I actually just want to pray that the Lord would come and meet us and, and speak with us here. God, we love you and we just thank you that you are uh, so good. We thank you that uh, you love us. We thank you that you pursue us. God, we thank you that you are full of grace and full of mercy. And God, we thank you that you're just. We thank you that you rejoice in what's good and that uh, you hate what's evil. God, we thank you that uh, you are going to set all things that are wrong to be right. And so, Lord, as we're here in this process right now, in this, this spot where your kingdom has is, is already come, but, but still not yet fully here, God, we ask that um, you would just help us to, to be people that wait patiently on you and that walk humbly with you. God, help us to uh, live as people that understand the times that we're in. God, we love you. We thank you so much for who you are. And we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so... I want to ask you guys, uh, what do you think happens when you die? Okay, I know most of us, you're here at church this morning. Uh, most of you probably have some sort of answer of, oh, you know, you either go to heaven or hell. And even within that, even amongst many people I've spoken to that consider themselves Christians, there's a wide variety of views about kind of what sends a person to heaven or hell or um, just kind of like, when exactly do you go there? What are the mechanics of all that? All that kind of stuff. But I really do think this is an important question for us to consider. What is it that happens when you die? And this can be a frustrating question to answer sometimes, right? Because it's, it's not really something that can be proven by science. I love science, by the way. I do not think that science and religion or science and Christianity are in conflict with one another, not by any means. I think that science is a great tool uh, that God has given us to be able to study and understand his universe. And as we do that, I think that we can actually get to know and, and understand God better. Because as you get to know his creation, it reflects certain things about the creator. So as we see the just how... 
majestically complex and beautiful our universe is, I think that that should inspire awe and worship in us. Like the more that we understand just how crazy awesome our bodies are or how big our universe is or anything like that, science helps uh, show us some of these things where it's like, man, this world, this universe that we live in is so much greater and more grand than we probably ever would have thought if we didn't have the ability to observe it and study it the way we do. So I think that science is something that should actually help spur the Christian on towards worship. But with that being said, science has its limitations. Science is something that studies our physical universe. It's limited by that. It's limited by the things that we're able to observe with our five senses. And, you know, we have tools that can kind of be more acute and help us pick up things beyond where our five senses are. But in reality, all of it still flows back to us receiving information about our physical universe. And that's great, and that's good, and that's important. But if that's the only tool that we have, then we are left hopelessly in the dark about some questions that might be outside of our physical universe. And so I don't know uh, where you are on this, this spectrum of just even thinking, like, do you even like to look into spiritual stuff? You're at least in church this morning, so maybe you're here because somebody just kind of kept bugging you to come, um, or, or maybe you're here because you're supposed to because it's a 10-year celebration or whatever. Uh, but, but I would encourage you just this morning to really just take a, a minute, or it's going to be longer than a minute, half hour, whatever, um, to, to really just sit with this thought and think, what is it that happens when you die? Is there any way that we can actually know? Because we can't run a scientific experiment on it. I mean, we can tell how the body decomposes and that kind of stuff. But if there is some sort of non-material part of us, what happens to it? If we're going to answer this question, we're going to need some sort of divine revelation. We're going to need insight beyond the kind of things that we can just study ourselves. And so because of that, I know a lot of time people are just like, whatever, man, I'm not going to think about that. I don't care. It's too mysterious. It doesn't really affect me right now. I'm just going to live my life the best I can, and whatever happens when I die happens. And I totally understand that mentality. I I get it. I hate dealing with things that I can't understand. You can ask my wife. That's like one of my greatest frustrations is when there's something that happens that I cannot understand. So I get it if this is a question that you don't naturally want to engage with. But as your pastor, I'm going to try and force you to engage with it this morning, or I'll lovingly try to coerce you to engage with it this morning. Because Jesus forces us to engage with it. You read the pages of scripture, uh, this is something that really comes up a lot and a lot. So I'm going to give you four reasons for why I think that we actually need to be people that think about death. Okay, and, and the reality is, first off, the, the Bible actually speaks about this a lot. Now, the Bible has so much stuff in it. It's not like every single page of it is all about this. There, there's so many things in there. But I think a lot of the time, uh, we, we don't really realize just how much the Bible does talk about heaven and hell. And specifically Jesus. A lot of the time I think people have uh, this mentality that Jesus was just all sunshine, rainbows, and flowers. Uh, but the reality is Jesus, like, he was, he was the coolest, most magnetic, like the, the broken and the hurting. They were drawn to him. They wanted to be around him. He was comforting. He said, come to me, you, all you who are weary. Take my yoke upon you. I mean, he was the guy that you wanted to be around. But at the same time, like, I think that we, we realize that and we want to neglect the fact that Jesus talked, uh, he had some harsh words. And he actually talked about hell a lot. He warns us about hell on many occasions throughout the Gospels. So sometimes people say, I don't want to hear those hellfire and brimstone preachers. And I understand that sentiment to some degree with what people are saying. I don't like to get up here and talk about hell all the time either. But the reality is, Jesus talked about hell. 
And if we're going to faithfully preach the scriptures, there's no way that we can get around this. Um, I was reading a book recently called Erasing Hell by Francis Chan. A lot of you probably know who that is. And uh, I love this quote that he had in there. He says, In my desire to distance myself from sadistic Christians who revel in the idea of wrath and punishment, I may have crossed the line. Refusing to teach a passage of scripture is just as wrong as abusing it. I really believe it's time for some of us to stop apologizing for God and start apologizing to him for being embarrassed by the ways he has chosen to reveal himself. And man, that, that hit me just especially as somebody who has a responsibility and a burden of teaching the scriptures is that uh, I, I want to shoot straight with you guys wherever you are, even if this is the only time you ever hear me preach, I want to make sure that I preach the full counsel of God to you. And that whatever does happen when you come to your last day and you enter into eternity, that you will have been well prepared for that moment. And that really leads, leads me to my second point of why we need to be people that think about death is that the stakes are just too high to ignore. I mean, it, we, we can dispute all day about what we think happens, but the reality is uh, the, the Bible is at least making a very clear claim, which is saying that when you die, it's more than just your body decomposing. There is something else that happens. Your spirit, you're going to go somewhere else. And we actually see that that place that you go to, there will be eternal consequences in it. Like you're, you're going to be there way longer than you're here. So I know that everything in this life seems urgent. Like it, it's so easy for us to get caught up in only thinking about the stuff we've got to get done here, right? Like that test that we have on Monday seems a lot more important than thinking about what's going to happen when we die. But the reality is you are here for a short period of time. You don't even know how long it is, but I can guarantee you it's short in light of eternity. And the stakes are too high for us to wander into this and to ignore warnings that are there in the scripture and to just say, well, we'll figure it out when we get there. And not only that, not only are the stakes high, not only does the Bible talk about it a lot, but the reality is, the third reason, is that thinking about death really does impact the way that you live. Sometimes uh, as, I, as I speak to people that are skeptics or, or they really don't like this idea of, of thinking about this, they'll say, well, man, I don't want to be so caught up in thinking about death or the life after this that I like miss out on living this one. And I'm like, amen, brother. I, I don't want to do that either. I, what I would argue, though, is that as we think about the next life, that really should have a huge impact on the way that we live this one. Because if I start to think about this next life and I start to think about the kingdom that I'm actually a citizen of, right? When I've become a Christian, I'm no longer a citizen of this world. I've become a citizen of heaven. And so even though this world is still the place that I live, I'm actually living here as a foreigner right now. And so as I think about this new life that I'm going to have in heaven, I want to say, I want to live as that kind of citizen. And so as I live for that kind of kingdom, I start to try to bring those values to this one that I live in right here. And so I would say that my life actually starts to be maximized by thinking about what's to come. Not, oh my goodness, I'm missing out because all I'm thinking about is what's going to happen when I die. No, I'm actually thinking about the kind of kingdom that I'm going to live in when I die, and I want to make this one as much like that as possible. So I would wholeheartedly disagree with the idea that you miss out on this life if you think about the next one. It also gives you a lot of hope as you go through because the reality is we all understand the brokenness of our world here and we long for it to be restored. And I'll tell you, man, most of us here in this room, we're sitting here in the United States of America, most of us have it pretty good. But, but there's a lot of people that are born in the situations where, where they don't have it nearly as good as we do. And if this life is the only one that we have hope in, then, then I think that that's a big problem. 
but it comforts me to know that whatever it is that happens in my life or in other people's around the globe, that there's something else that God has in store for us. And that he, he is inviting each one of us into that. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what country you were born in. It doesn't matter how much money you have. None of those kind of things. And we're going to see some of that as we get into the scripture I have today, which I'm taking a really long time to set up. Um, all right, but then the, the last reason that I think we really need to be people that think about death is because it might come sooner than you think. And I don't say this to, to make you people that like, live in fear or worry or anything like that all the time. As a matter of fact, I would say that if you are secure in your faith in Christ, then this can actually free you from the fear of death. But the reality is, like, it, it can come at any moment. All of us expect to be people that are going to live till what, we're 80, 90 years old, something like that. Maybe we're all going to be 100 now with medical advances or something. Um, but you don't know. Like, you really don't know what's going to happen to you. And for many of you in this room, that, that truth, like, you've experienced that. Not that you've died, but somebody close to you, like you've experienced the pain of death very much in your life, especially maybe an untimely death. I remember the, uh, death is one of those things that like you intellectually realize, yeah, of course it's going to happen to all of us, but um, whenever there's somebody your age that you were close to, I think it can kind of start to hit you in a different way of like, oh my goodness, like that could have been me. I remember when my, uh, one of my best friends from high school, we would hang out every weekend and play basketball, Risk, and Guitar Hero. And uh, I mean, seriously, we, we played football together. We, we, would, we would hang out every weekend, this, this group of us. And uh, I kind of started to distance, there was a distance that started to grow between me and my high school friends, but you know, they always played an important role in my life and I'll always be thankful for them. And uh, I remember it was three years ago that uh, one of my best friends from high school, his name was Tyler Jones, uh, just passed away in his sleep, age 27. Um, I still don't know what happened. I, I, I have no idea. I just know that he went to bed one night and he didn't wake up the next morning. And it was crazy going to that funeral and seeing all these people that I was with in high school and just kind of reliving all those memories of like, man, this is a guy that I used to like, like we were in the same grade. We graduated together. We did all these kind of things. We, we won a state championship in football together. We, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and it was like, He's, I'm never going to see him again. And you start to realize, like, how do I know that I'm going to wake up the next day? You know, and, and as I said, I, I don't say that to make you scared. It's just a reality of, like, stuff happens, guys. And, and you know that, but I think that we, we have to think about that because, man, I want to be ready when that day does come. All right? So as I, as I uh, kind of lay all that for our foundation, I want to get into the scripture that I have for us this morning. I warned you guys this was going to be heavy, so... Um, if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Luke chapter 16, and uh, we're going to be looking at a parable that Jesus told to uh, primarily to Pharisees. Here's what he said. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame." 
But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received good things, and likewise things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father, Abraham, but if if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, They will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. All right, so there's a lot that's going on here in this parable. And uh, it comes, we only find it in the Gospel of Luke. And if you read Luke's Gospel, one of the things that you'll notice is this recurring theme that he really has about social justice. There's a lot uh, that Luke writes about the poor and and caring for the poor and, and kind of speaking against greed. And so that's actually the context where we get this parable. Uh, Just a few verses earlier, in Luke 16, 13 to 15, Jesus had said this. He said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of the Lord. And so Jesus is really uh, tr- being straightforward with them, letting them have it. Guys, you, you have God, your, your God is money. On the outside, you have it all going on. People in this time especially would think that if you were rich, that that was just a sign of God's favor on you. So if, if I, if, in this parable, you know, the rich man, the fine clothes, all that kind of stuff, if that's me, yeah, God must love me. I must be doing great. And Jesus is trying to help them see, hey guys, the things that you value, God doesn't care about that stuff. What what, what you guys lift up in your eyes, that's that's detestable in the eyes of the Lord. It says, your guys' God is money. You can't serve both God and money. You you just, you cannot do it. And so he's trying to warn them as straightforward as he can. and, And they start to scoff at him. They think this is ridiculous. Of course money is, is a blessing from God. Of course it's a sign of meaning that God is, is uh, favoring you. And, and Jesus is trying to tell them, no, it's not. You guys think that, that you can fool everybody. I know what your heart's on the inside. The Lord sees your hearts. And so even though it looks great with everything that you've got going on externally, just like in this parable he told, the the rich man looks like he's got everything great externally. The reality is God knows and you can't fool him. Okay? So God looks at the heart. He cares about the heart. Now, I'm not saying here that wealth in itself is inherently evil. Matter of fact, Abraham, one of the guys that we see in the parable there that's, that's with Lazarus, Abraham was rich in his lifetime. Right? Like, we, we see some rich people that were favored in Scripture. But, but the money in and of itself is not an indicator one way or the other of God's favor upon you. But what Jesus is very, very solemnly warning us against here is that money cannot be your God. If this is what you're after, if this is the thing that your life is about, which is making riches, you, you will not be able to serve the Lord. And so often, as we do accumulate money, that's what the aim of our life becomes. 
And this is why I think Jesus was very honest with us about how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That it's easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because he knows what riches do to our hearts. And so you'll see this kind of thing all throughout the gospel of Luke. And so Jesus is trying to drive this point home to him, right? He goes on and he says a couple more things about the law and divorce. And then he goes and he gets to this parable. And in this parable we see the guy that looks like he has it all together on the outside, then the reality is wicked on the inside. And so let's look at the characters here in this parable. We've got the rich man. This is the guy that the Pharisees would have related to, that they, they would have said, yeah, this guy's knocking it out of the park. And frankly, he's the one that probably looks more like most of us here in this room. I mean, if you were to look at the, the lives of these two guys, the guy that dresses nice, eats well every day, uh, has all of his comforts met, uh, versus the guy that's begging at the gate, has dog licking his sores, and is, is uh, just hoping for crumbs, which one do you think actually reflects your life more? You know, that's, that's a convicting thing for us, right? Because a lot of time we always want to dismiss ourselves for, from uh, the, the bad stuff we see and immediately assume we're the good guy. All right, now, and once again, I'm not saying the externals are automatically an indicator of which one you are. I'm just saying if you're looking at these external life circumstances, most of us here probably relate much more to the rich man. This is a guy that uh, had a ton of money. All of his needs were taken care of. He, he dressed really lavishly, so, you know, just the, the kind of guy he should be in GQ magazine. Um, living in splendor every day. He's got the life. And, and we see that this is a guy whose resources are very high, but his character is low. Because as rich as he is, there's literally a, a, a poor man sitting at his gate, begging, wishing he could even have the crumbs that fall from his table. And, and this rich man doesn't pay him any attention. The dogs pay more attention to him than the rich man does. At least the dogs come and lick the sores. The rich man does nothing for him. So he's got a lot of resources, but he's got very low character. Lazarus, on the other hand, um, is interesting. Lazarus, he is actually, a lot of people, there are some people that dispute whether this is even a parable because it's the only parable that Jesus told that someone gets a name. Um, but me, along with most other biblical scholars, would think this is a parable because it bears pretty much all the characteristics you're looking for in a parable. Uh, so that means that if Jesus decided to name this character, there's probably a reason why. And so Lazarus is the uh, form of the name Eleazar, which means God is my help. Which is very interesting, right? Because what we see here, where the rich man should be the one that's, that's helping this guy in this parable, nobody does. But, but who actually does end up helping him eventually? God. It's the angels that carry him away to Abraham's bosom. So I think that's why he's, he's named here. Uh, we actually don't get to see too much about Lazarus as far as his character or anything. Explicitly, we just see that he's a guy that was in great need and that he was being neglected. Now, let's look at the physical outcomes of these two characters. Two people that live very, very different lives. But physically, where do they end up? The exact same place from a bodily standpoint. Exact same thing. There's no amount of money or uh, uh, riches, uh, comforts that can save you from death. If you are rich, you will die. If you are poor, you will die. And so it's very interesting to see as, as, as separated as they were that they end up having the exact same fate happen to them on a physical level. But uh, I think that this is something that really should remind us of the inherent equal dignity that each human being has. 
And that is something that it's like, man, they're, they're, being rich or talented or whatever it is you want to put in there does not make you more valuable than anybody else. You are not more valuable than the homeless guy that you pass on the street out there. And I know that most of us would never say that we think that. Like, we would always say, oh, of course I agree that we're all of equal value. Um, but, but I think sometimes we actually need to do a little bit more of a heart check and say, does my life suggest that we're all of equal value? Like, does my attitude that I have towards others uh, th- that are less talented than me or that are, uh, have less money than me or uh, have worse manners than me or whatever it may be, do I actually believe that they have the same value before God that I do? So we see that they have the same physical outcome, but also that their spiritual outcomes are very, very different. We see that uh, Lazarus dies, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. All right, now that's kind of what? Abraham's bosom? That's kind of weird, right? Uh, What's going on there? So Abraham, first off, Abraham is... A, uh, what we would call one of the patriarchs. If you go back to Genesis, he's this guy that God makes a covenant with. He's a good dude. Uh, he has faith. It says that, that he believes God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham kind of uh, serves as this father of all of us that would have faith in God. And so Paul even takes this in the book of Romans and, and talks about how just as Abraham was credited as being righteous by his faith, so now we too as Christians are actually children of Abraham. Not because we have an ethnic tie to him. Most of us in here don't have an ethnic tie to Abraham, but we have a faith tied to him. We are his children in the sense that we believe what God has said, and we are made righteous because of that, and that's our belief in the gospel. But uh, so anyway, the, the point with Abraham's bosom here is, is, is Abraham is a guy that's in the presence of the Lord, and uh, Jesus even pretty much tells us this straight up in Matthew 22. He, he gets trapped. He doesn't get trapped. People try to trap him uh, with this question about the resurrection, saying, oh, we don't really think there's life after death, and we're going to trap you with this ridiculous question. And so he, he answers them brilliantly. I won't get into it right now. But one of the things that he says is, uh, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so Jesus is saying in this statement is that this is happening way, 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 way after Abraham has died physically. But God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. He said, I am the God of Abraham when he made this statement. So he's saying, guys, there's life after death. It's not like Abraham died, decayed, is gone, and no, and no more. Abraham is, like, God is still Abraham's God. He's with God. So when we see this picture that uh, Lazarus is being carried away to Abraham's bosom, it means he's being carried to the place where Abraham is. Bosom is just a word for chest, by the way. Um, and, and really, it actually kind of communicates this idea of being at a banquet together. When you see this idea of heaven, that there's a, uh, an image of the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? This, this feast that we go and have together. And uh, in this time... Sometimes people would have the, these meals and you would even like recline on the chest of like the host every now and then. You actually see the apostle John did this with Jesus at the Last Supper. In John thirteen twenty three. it says, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Um, so that's the idea of where Lazarus is going. This is the place that you want to be. Now, the rich man, was, he died, but he goes to a very different place. It says, the rich man has died and buried. There's no mention of angels carrying him away anywhere. But we quickly start to realize that he's gone to a place that's very different from Abraham's bosom. We see that he's gone to a place that's full of total agony and torment. It's so bad that this guy who had every single thing that he could have ever wanted in life in absolute abundance is begging 
for literally a, a drop of water. Like that, that this guy that he would pass by, probably never wanted to touch, never wanted to pay attention to, he's begging that this guy would be able to dip his finger in water and put it on his tongue. Now, think about how terrible this place must be if he's at that spot. He says, Abraham, just, just give me even this little thing. Right? And unfortunately, we see that he's not even able to, to get that. And this imagery of torment and flame, this is, this is really consistent throughout the scriptures, that this is the way hell is described, whether or not this is physically how it actually is, or it's just imagery trying to help us get a picture of what this place is like, I don't know. But at the very least, what I can tell you is it's very clear that this is a place that nobody wants to be. Hell is not a party. Hell is not a place where Satan is king. Hell is a place that was actually designed for the devil and his angels as a place of torment. And those that, that will be there are those that have followed him in his rebellion and not been forgiven of sin. Satan is not the king of hell. That is one of the things that annoys me so much in popular culture. I always see this thing of like God rules heaven, Satan. No, Satan does not rule hell. Hell is a place of torment that is designed for him. And unfortunately, people will end up going there as well. Now, we see that, that Abraham, uh, gets, he, he receives this request for, from the rich man. And uh, I want to look at these, these requests here. First, I actually want to look at the request of Lazarus. We actually never see Lazarus make a request in this parable, but we see it, what he desired. So we can assume that in his life at some point, he probably asked uh, the rich man, maybe just even his presence of being at his gate was kind of a, a subtle request of, hey man, I really need you to help me. I don't know if he was disabled. I don't know if that's why he couldn't work or anything like that. We see that he was laid at the gate, so there was kind of even a passive action of that. Whatever it is, this man was in great need of help, and his requests were consistently denied. The rich man wouldn't even give him the crumbs from his table. And so now we see the tables are turned, that the rich man is, is the one that's in great need and in great pain and in great suffering. And as he makes a request, it becomes denied. And I want you to notice, notice here that the, the denial of the request is not really vindictive. I don't pick up that tone when I read it. As a matter of fact, Abraham even calls this guy child. I think there's actually a, uh, a sense of sorrow in the reality of what has happened here. It's not like, screw you. You did this to that poor guy when he was here, so now this is going to happen. He does remind him of what he lived, of how he lived in his life. But he really just explains to him, dude, like there, there's a, a chasm that's fixed between us. There's a gap that, that's fixed between us, and, and there's no crossing over. Like, like, even if we wanted to, Lazarus can't come down there and help you, and you can't come up here and, and, and be with us. And this is a scary thing to think that, man, what, this happened after the death, right? That they're, they're carried away to these different places, and Abraham seems to suggest, man, that, that this is where you're stuck. And as we look at the attitudes of the people in this parable as well, uh, Lazarus, we actually don't really get to see uh, so, so much of his attitude, but we do get to see the attitude of the rich man. And I notice that even in this place of torment, I still don't think that he's understood that Lazarus is just as valuable of a human being as he is. Right? Like, look at, look at what he says. Hey, Abraham. He doesn't ask Abraham to help him. Hey, send Lazarus to do this. Send Lazarus to go give me the water. Send Lazarus to go tell uh, my family. And what, what I'm drawing from this is like, man, he, he still thinks that Lazarus is just this guy that, that he can order around and have him do whatever he wants because he's just not as important. Another thing I see in, in this rich man 
is uh, that, that, man, he, I, I don't think he ever really repented. I really don't. I mean, he, he's, he's sad about the fact that he's there. It's clear that he doesn't want to be there. But, but there's really no indication that there's any repentance over his sin. As a matter of fact, the only somewhat noble thing that he does in this parable is say, okay, if I can't get out of here, at least send Lazarus back to my brothers because I don't want them to come here. And, and that's great. I, that, I mean, that's good that he doesn't want them to come here. But notice it, it's not, hey, send them back to show how, how wrong we were. Like we, we really messed up. I messed up. I wish I hadn't done this. There's not really any remorse for any of his sin here. What there is is a desire to escape consequence. And I think that that's a very, there's a very real difference between true repentance and, and grief over consequence. Because I think oftentimes we can have grief over consequence of, man, I don't really regret what I did. I just hate the fact that things have played out the way that they have. That's very different from, from what true repentance is, which is where God starts to reveal to us what our sin is. And we realize, oh my like, Lord, I, I'm a sinner. Like, I, I have messed up. I have done what is wrong and what is evil. I'm rightfully under your wrath. I am part of this world being screwed up. I am sorry for what I've done. I need you to forgive me. And, and guys, there's a huge difference between that. Because nobody wants to go to hell. Nobody wants to go to this place of torment. But, but that's not the same as actually being repentant and, and having sorrow over the sin that you're committing. And I never see that in the rich man here. And see, I think that, that hard hearts, they, they require a miracle. And every one of us has a hard heart. And, and if, if you are a Christian, it is by the grace of God that he has opened up your eyes and moved you from death to life. He has worked a miracle in you, you see. And we need, if we're going to come to salvation, it requires a miracle, but it's a different kind of miracle than what the rich man is thinking, right? Because his, his reasoning is, if you send Lazarus, okay, I know that we've had Moses and the prophets. I know that we've had all this time to repent, all this kind of stuff. I know that we've had every reason to believe that you're good, right? You've blessed us, all this kind of stuff. But, but if you would just do this miracle, like if you would just send Lazarus back, surely they would repent, and, I, and guys, I can't tell you how true that rings in, in our world today. I have talked to so many people. I, I do evangelism on campus all the time. And um, sometimes as I'm talking to skeptics, and my heart goes out for them. I understand, like, I, I, I understand skepticism. I get it. I'm not trying to judge people that have doubts. I, I, I'm there with you. I have my own doubts a lot of the time. But sometimes I'll talk to people and I think that, that they're under this impression that if, if they just saw a miracle X, Y, or Z, it would change things. And when I read this parable, I'm like, I don't think it will. I don't think it will. You, you, have, uh, you believe that there's some sort of special miracle that's going to happen that changes your life. But the reality is uh, th that when you have a hard heart, you can explain away any kind of miracle. You know, a lot of people say, well, if miracles really happen, then, then why have so few people experienced them? Because they're miracles. <laughs> if they were commonplace, we would have some sort of explanation. It would say, well, we don't really understand it, but it's a thing that happens. Like, kind of like gravity. We don't really understand it. It was a thing that happens. It's like, whatever. We would, we would start to dismiss every miracle that ever happened. There's always a way that we can explain it away. And we see this, this kind of stuff happened in, in Jesus' times, look at what he said in Matthew eleven twenty. It says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. He says, Woe to you, Capernaum. 
Man, if I had done the miracles in you, uh, that, that if, I, if I had done the miracles in Tyre and Sidon that I had done in you, they would have repented long ago. Sodom and Gomorrah is going to rise up and judge you on the day of judgment. Because if I had done the miracles there in Sodom, they would have repented. And Sodom is a place that was destroyed literally with fire from heaven. And, and so, so we see here that even as Jesus did all these kind of miracles in front of them, many didn't repent. I, I know... Uh, for some of you, you're going through the Gospel of John in your life groups. In mine, we just recently came to John chapter 6, which is a really challenging chapter in the Bible. And uh, it comes right at, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. It says 5,000 men, so it's probably way more than that, with a few loaves and fish. I mean, it's just this incredible miracle. He walks on water to the other side of the sea. And these people are, are really excited. They want to make him king. They go find him on the other side of the sea. He starts to give this teaching that disturbs them about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And uh, as he does this, all these people start turning away from him, right? Even though they had just seen him feed 5,000 people with loaves and fish. And, and, and Jesus, he explains what's going on. He says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so as we sit here and we see, you guys have, have seen all of these incredible miracles and all this stuff happen. You have every reason to believe. You've seen miracles X, Y, and Z. And the reality is your heart is still hard against it. This is not the kind of miracle that you need. And, and, and are there people that have come to faith through seeing miracles? Absolutely. I'm not denying that, okay? But I'm, what I am saying is that there's another miracle that's going on under the surface, which is the grace of God opening up your eyes to repentance. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so my, my prayer is that, man, God is drawing some of you here today. I, I don't know. May, maybe the Lord is working in some of your hearts right now. We've even seeing, God, I'm starting to understand for the first time really that I'm a sinner, that I'm legitimately in danger of, of this place of agony and torment. And God, I, I don't want to go there, not just because I'm afraid of the consequences, but you're starting to show me that I'm actually a sinner that actually needs your grace. And, and I want to repent of that, and I want to turn, I want to live with you. And that's my prayer, that that would be the kind of miracle that we see this morning. You know, also, uh, as this parable kind of comes to a close, we see that there's a foreshadowing that happens. Jesus tells them, you know, what we see as the rich man goes to Abraham and says, but yeah, if this happens, they'll repent. And Abraham says, no, they won't. They have Moses and the prophets. Even if someone raises from the dead, they won't. They won't believe. And sure enough, later in Jesus' ministry, he actually physically raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. This is what we read here in John chapter 11, 43 to 53. When he had said these things, he cried out, this is Jesus, with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for all the people and that the whole nation not perish. 
Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one children, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. All right, so literally, what we've seen was somebody that came back from the dead. And his name was even Lazarus. And, and what is the reaction? It says that many believed. As I said, right? God does use miracles like this. And there's another miracle under the surface that brings them to faith. But what, do some, what was the reaction of some of the others? They just saw this guy get raised from the dead. And they go and tell on Jesus with the Pharisees. And they say, hey, he's, he's raising people from the dead. And they're like, shoot, we got to do something about this. And so rather than repent and realize their sin, they decide that what they should do is kill him. And, 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 you know, you, you see this, and there are other ancient stories that, that have this same kind of thing where a guy goes back from the dead and tells people something, they all believe it. And the Bible, this is a twist in the way that Jesus tells it. It's like, no, like, they, they won't. Even if a guy comes from back, back from the dead, they're not going to believe it. And as a matter of fact, it accelerates their plan to go and kill Jesus. And so there's really an even greater foreshadowing that happens here, right? Because not only did they not repent upon the, the resurrection of Lazarus, ultimately, whose resurrection are we thinking of when we, we read this? Jesus. Jesus is ultimately the one that's going to, to come back from the dead, and they're not going to believe with him either. And guys, Jesus is foreshadowing here this, this idea of, man, I, I am going to raise from the dead. And even when I do that, there's going to be certain, there's going to be people that, 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 that don't believe. You guys, my prayer is that we would be people that do. That God would work that miracle in us to understand that we are sinners. That we are separated from God. That we're under his wrath. That we deserve his punishment. But that God is good and loving and gracious and kind. And the way that he makes his justice and his wrath work together is that he decided he would take the wrath for his sin upon himself. And so, so Jesus, who is God in the flesh, right? John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so God in the flesh walks this earth. He lives a perfect life. He has incredible patience as he teaches people, he heals people. He's bringing the kingdom of God in. But he knows that ultimately the biggest purpose for why he came was to go and to die on a cross. And so as these people that he's preached to, as he's consistently been patient with and, and tried to teach them and tried to help them understand who God is, they refuse and instead conspire to kill him. And so he's turned over, he's betrayed by one of his closest followers, and he hangs on the cross. And as he dies physically, he's experiencing the, penal the penalty for sin, which is what God said all the way from the beginning in Genesis, that if you eat from the tree, you will surely die. This is the wages of sin is death. So Jesus dies on the cross, and his enemies rejoice for a little while. They think, great, we finally got this problem taken care of. But the story doesn't end there. You see, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was paying for our sins. And every ounce of punishment that you deserve, every bit of agony that, that you should be experiencing over the judgment of your sin and hell was put upon Jesus on the cross. So that if you have faith in him, that you can be forgiven and that he has purchased your salvation. And when you purchase something, what do you get? You get a receipt. You get something that's, that's proof of purchase. Yeah, this worked. This went through. And this is what the resurrection is. You see, three days later, Jesus would rise from the dead. 
And, and although sin is, death is the penalty for sin, Jesus in raising from the dead shows that he has overcome the penalty for sin. He has paid it in your place. Guys, this is the beauty of the cross. This is the beauty of the cross. That there is an enemy that nobody else has been able to defeat. As I said, there's not one of us, rich, poor, uh, talented, untalented, doesn't matter what country you're living in, what time, and death is coming for all of us. Because all of us have sinned. We understand that we we are under that penalty, but Jesus takes our death upon himself and he beats it. He raises from the dead. He says, guys, I, I, I've come to give you new life. That whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so this is what he purchases for us on the cross, and he proves it in the resurrection. And so even as he proves this in the resurrection, still there are hard hearts. And just as he said, even if someone raises from the dead, they won't believe. Look at what happens in Matthew 28, 11 through 15. It says, this is after the resurrection happens. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard, there were guards at the, at the tomb where Jesus was buried to try and guard, because they're like, hey, he talked about raising from the dead, so we want to like, make sure that doesn't actually happen. We don't want to scam or, or something to be pulled off. So we're going to station guards there. So they, they station guards. Jesus resurrects from the dead. Angel comes and rolls a stone away, and they're like, we're out of here. So they, 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 uh, this happens, and, and they're like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Okay, so now while they were on their way, some of the guard came to the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave them a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. And so even as Jesus resurrects from the dead, there's still a way that they explain it away. Well, the disciples came and stole the body and for whatever reason want to die for the testimony of a dead body that they know is a lie, which makes no sense. But, but, but that's, that's the story we're going to pass around. And so unfortunately, that's a response. That is a response that many have to the preaching of the gospel. As you sit here and preach the beauty of the cross, you see the necessity, the the place that you're in, how you need salvation, and how Jesus accomplished that, many are still going to say, nah, I don't believe it. But my prayer is that that wouldn't be any of us here today. And so it's our turn. It's our turn now. What is our response going to be? And what I would encourage us to respond in is to live with an eternal perspective. That I hope this morning as we've considered these things, it's like, man, I, want, I, I need to think bigger. I need to think beyond just what's right in front of me right now. I need to be a person that lives with an eternal perspective, and that's going to affect you in four ways. The first is that this is going to affect the, the things that you prioritize. God is going to become your number one priority. As you realize, oh my goodness, the, the test I was worrying about so much this week, like, I'm not saying I'm going to neglect that or anything like that, but dude, it's, it's not nearly as important as I thought it was. I've got eternal matters that are a lot more significant. You're going to think about, man, am am I really ready for eternity? Even as you sit here this morning, I said, just just like I said, don't assume that you're always the good guy in the parable. Don't assume that just because you grew up in church or or something like that, that, that you are automatically saved or that you have a relationship with Jesus. I want you to think, do I really know Jesus? 
do I really know him? Do I really believe that message, that, that I'm a sinner that's under God's wrath, that, that needs his grace, and that he's given that to me in Jesus? And that he's invited me into a relationship with him, that I can have life, and I can walk with him both in this life and into eternity. And if, that's, if, if you're not sure, I would, I would suggest that you prioritize that as the number one thing you pursue. And if you are a Christian, then I'd still suggest that's the number one thing you pursue, that you want to know God more every day. I would also say that this affects the way that we use our resources, right? We see this with the rich man. Um, money can't be your God, okay? And, and for the rich man, he, he didn't go to hell because money, because he was rich. He went to hell because money was his God. And as Jesus said, uh, do not store up for yourself treasures on, on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. He talks about where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so the rich man's treasure was an indicator of where his heart was. So guys, in a room this size, there's probably going to be a lot of different tax brackets. All right? Some of you are going to make a lot of money and some of you aren't. But, but who, wherever you may end up being, may you not be one that hoards treasures here on earth. If God blesses you with a lot of money, then bless people with it. Let, let your treasure be in heaven, guys. Like, like invest that in a way that is kingdom focused. It's also the other thing about this eternal perspective is that it's going to affect the way that you view people. Right, as you're going to see uh, that, that, that all of us ultimately have the, the same physical end here, but there's a chance that, that we're going to have different spiritual ends. And you're going to, th- going to see them as being more valuable than you saw them before. This is an eternal soul. This is a child of God that he cares deeply about. You see that uh, earthly success is not an indicator of God's blessing upon them necessarily. And finally, this is going to affect the way that we interact with people. First, that we would care for them physically. Right? The rich man did not live with an eternal perspective at all. And so what did he do? He completely neglected the physical needs of his neighbor. And, and guys, if, if we're people that live with an eternal perspective, our life doesn't become about hoarding money. It's, man, how, how can I bless and serve and help those around me? There's people that are in need great because I know there's something way more important. I, I, I want to use whatever earthly resources I have right now, which are all, none of them are going with me to heaven anyway, and, and invest them in a way that's going to help people. So you, you're going to care for others physically. And also you're going to care for them spiritually. That we would be people that uh, realize, man, God is, is a, uh, a, a God that is just and good, but, but he, he has wrath and that people need to, to escape from that. And he's made a way in Jesus. And that we would be stewards of that message. That we'd be people that go and carry the gospel and tell others about it. So the uh, band can come back up here now as I'm going to close this in prayer and then I'm just going to say one last thing after that. God, we love you and uh, we just thank you so much that you love us. We thank you for the fact that you are eternal. We thank you for the fact that we can trust you. And God, I know that the, the text we've read this morning is heavy. It's hard to think about the fact that hell is real. But God, let us also remember the fact that heaven is real. And and that the majesty of the cross is much greater than we thought before. God, as we realize what we've been saved from, if we are saved, then God, I just pray that you would help us to live like that, that we understand that, that we rejoice like that. 
And we live with that thankfulness and we live with an urgency. And God, if there's those in this room this morning that don't know you, and I pray that today you would work the miracle that they need in their lives to open up their eyes to see you and to come to repentance and to come to eternal life with you. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. So as we enter into this time of worship here, I just want to leave you with this one last thought, which has been so significant for me um, in following Jesus. And it's really just the fact that God is good. Like, I I always tell people I'm discipling, guys, this is going to be an absolutely essential thing if you want to continue to grow as a Christian, that you have to understand that God is good and that you can trust him above anything else. I know when we talk about stuff like this, uh, I'll be honest, guys, I I hate talking about hell. I hate thinking about hell. And a lot of time I just try not to because it doesn't make sense to me. I, I, I don't get why it would happen. I, I, don't, I don't get, I, I just wish that nobody would go there. And the only comfort I have is knowing that God knows so much more than I do. Like his perspective is so much greater than my perspective is. And I can trust that he's always going to make the right decision. And so guys, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I understand every single thing that's going to happen after death or, or you know, what, There's a million questions that I still have. What I've tried to do this morning is be as faithful as I possibly can and bring in the scripture before you and say, hey guys, this is what this looks like. This is saying, this is what I think that we need to live in light of that. But even as I know we have questions floating around and some of these things are hard for us, that that we would say, man, God, whatever it is, even amongst all the questions that I have, I wanna trust that you're good. I want to trust that you're good. I want to trust that you know what you're doing more than me. And I want to stop judging you. Like, I don't want to judge you for the things that you do because I know that your ways are higher than my ways. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Guys, we serve a good God that knows so much more and understands so much more than we do. So I know that it can be painful to think about some of these things sometimes. But first off, the way that we feel doesn't change reality, right? No matter how much you want to believe or not believe something, it doesn't change what's actually true. And and another thing is that, man, uh, at least one truth we can rest in is that our God is good and that he knows what he's doing, that we can trust him. And and the cool thing, too, is that that God has has said, hey, I I want to redeem you and I want to make you part of my army that goes and, and works in this process of helping redeem the world. And so guys, if the, if the idea of hell disturbs you, and it should, then, then I would encourage us that, man, maybe we would be people that have a little bit more zeal to go and to warn people before it is too late. So as we enter into this time of worship here, we are, uh, we're going to sing some songs, but there's also going to be an opportunity for us to take communion. And uh, communion is, is this act where there's going to be some broken bread back there. There's going to be some, uh, some grape juice. And at the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples, the, uh, he, he did these things. He broke bread and he poured out wine. He says, this is my body broken for you. And he took the wine. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so when we do this, he says, do this in remembrance of me. So if you're a Christian, we invite you to go and take this because as you do, you're taking, you're proclaiming, yes, Jesus, I believe that your body was broken for me. I believe that your blood was poured out for me. And I believe that by this I am saved and that I've been brought into relationship with you. If you're not a Christian, we would ask that you just abstain from that because that might not be something that you're really ready to proclaim.
if, you, if you're sitting here and you say, hey man, like, I, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Like, I think maybe I am, maybe I'm not. I don't really know. I need to talk to somebody. There's gonna be people in the back that you can pray with. I'm gonna be back there if you wanna pray with me. Uh, we, we'd love, we would love to talk with you about what your relationship with, with Jesus looks like. And maybe you're like, hey, dude, I, I know I came to this service and I didn't know Jesus, but I, I think that I, I want to start following him. Then I would direct you to the same place. And there's, there's people back there that know and love Jesus that would love to start helping you walk into that relationship. All right, I love you guys. I hope that, that we are able to uh, just have a, a great time of worship, even amidst, uh, amongst the fact that we, we know there's been some heavy stuff, that as we see what we've been saved from, that we would be able to worship God and say, God, you are great and good and awesome, and thank you for delivering me from your wrath. Thank you for inviting me into eternal life with you.